question we all battle with, and I've changed the definition and the answer so many times for myself. What is success? Great. Thanks, thanks. It was, it was wonderful actually watching that, um, the Theresa May video. Because it, it reminds me of like the after party at an academic conference. Have you ever been to one? Because basically, like among most academics, their body is just there to carry their heads around. <laughs> All out of sync and everything. Are your actuarial conferences a bit like that too? Yeah, I imagine. I imagine. Good. All right, good. Um, I don't know where my clicker went. Do I have a clicker? Yeah, very good. Um, okay, so, so this morning, um, we, we talked about uh, creative thinking. But actually, if you remember, we drew those pictures. Uh, and, and one of the things that I talked about with drawing the picture was this idea of uh, creative courage. Right? Actually having the courage um, to, to, to bring your thinking to bear, actually. And also having the courage to, like, to break out of that non-linear kind of approach, yeah? to try something differently. Um, so what I'd like to do, actually, just for like 15, 15 20 minutes or so, is, is to, to make a proposition. Um, and the proposition is that this idea of creative thinking and, and also this idea of non-linearity um, is perhaps even more important in a much broader sense, right? Because this morning what we spoke about a lot was, was work, all right? Because you're here for a reason. I think you're all ambitious. Many of you have been successful uh, to a large degree already in your careers, but for others it's about an aspiration, right? Um, but what I'm going to ask you to do is like, think really about what success means. Right, what I like to do is sort of share a little bit of a story, my own story, um, but the story shouldn't be about me, it should actually be, be about you. All right? So how does that sound? Good. Okay, so we're going from macroeconomic level very much to, to you. Um, so actually I want to share a little, little picture with you um, because you know, I grew up in a, a small country town uh, called Shepparton in the southeast uh, of Australia. Okay. And I had six brothers and sisters, and, and there they are, most of them. Um, <laughs> and, you know, when we were growing up as kids, it was really hard to make ends meet. Right? I mean, you can see the haircut of my brother, you know, you know who, who did the haircutting and, and everything. Um, but but we, we did it really tough. And none of my brothers and sisters um, finished high school. In fact, none of my brothers and sisters stayed at high school beyond the age of 15. And they didn't leave school at 15 years old because they wanted to leave school. They left school because it was a necessity. Uh, now, of course, I was a little bit the, the lucky one uh, because I was at the tail end of the family. Um, but despite you know, growing up in this kind of very tough financial, economic situation as a kid, um, watching my brothers and sisters go off to work at the age of 15, you know, I had a big dream, a big dream as a kid. And my dream, actually, was to become a professional sports person, okay, to become a, a professional cyclist. So when I was a little kid, um, actually when I was nine years old, I started racing my BMX at the local, local track. And then by the time I was 13 or 14 years old, I moved on to the velodrome, onto the track. And then by the time I was 16, which was when this photo was taken, uh, I was racing national level. So I was in the state team, and I was, I was racing national level championships. So, you know, for as long as I can remember as a little kid, my dream was to become a professional cyclist. That's my, my bedroom was like a shrine, you know, to, to the Tour de France and the Giro and everything else. But of course, you know, when you grow up in an environment like that and you're going to school, um, you also are up against reality sometimes. And, you know, I never forget, I guess, 
from the age of around 15 years old, something started to happen. Uh, and the first thing that really struck me, actually, the first thing that, really, that, that I remember about that, that confrontation of reality um, was my first meeting with my school careers advisor. Do you have these kind of people here in South Africa? A, a career advisor at school who give you direction and guidance? Actually, we were speaking over, over lunch. About, sometimes it's a teacher, but in my case, it was a career advisor. And I never, you know, I never forget going in to meet my careers advisor, Mrs. Edvins, and sitting there with her, and she said, so Jamie, what do you want to do? And of course, what I said to her was, I want to be a professional cyclist. You know, actually, I didn't say that. I said, I want to be the next Eddie Merckx. And of course, she looked at me and she was like, Eddie who? She, she had no clue. And of course, Eddie Merckx was the greatest cyclist of all time. And I said, I want to be a professional. Um, and I never forget what she said to me. You know, she looked me in the eye and said, well, Jamie, isn't it time to grow up? You know, isn't it time to be more serious? Because is cycling going to, is that a career? Is that going to pay the bills? Is that going to help you raise a family? You know, I could understand it. I was, it was a very working class neighborhood where I grew up. It was, you know, it was a blue collar neighborhood. But I never forget, you know, leaving that, that room and I was really, really shaken up because, you know, since I was nine, the only thing I dreamed about was racing my bike. And I was good at it. You know, but the other thing, of course, was that I was a pretty smart kid. And I did really, really well at school. Um, and in fact, not too long after this photo was taken, this was, a, this was in the Shepherd newspaper, my friend and I, Stuart McKenzie, the guy on the, on the right, um, we were going off to the Australian Championships. I went away, I did very well, top 10, and I came back, and I set my end of school exams. And I did really well. And I did so well um, that I got offered a scholarship to go to the University of Melbourne. Yeah, and the University of Melbourne in Australia, it's like Oxford, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's one of these hallowed academic institutions. And I got offered a scholarship. You know? And I never forget you know, getting this letter from the university and you know, lying in my bed and looking at it and thinking, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. This is not what I've dreamed about since I was nine. But of course, you can also understand that in the, in the neighborhood that I grew up, and honestly, I grew up on a housing commission estate. It was a public housing commission estate. You could count the number of kids who'd gone on to university on your fingers. And there were maybe three or 400 kids in that neighborhood. So I started to feel a massive weight of expectation. Because, you know, when my, when my family saw I got this letter, when my friends, you know, I used to work at a, as a checkout guy at the local supermarket. You know, they knew. So I started to feel this real sense of responsibility. And also, of course, what I saw was my brothers and sisters. Because none of them had had the chance that I was now being offered. So it was a really, really tough choice. So I, I spent some time thinking about it. My parents were great. They said, it's your choice. But I'm not sure if you understand what I'm saying, but I didn't feel I had a choice. I didn't feel I had a choice. So two weeks before my 18th birthday, uh, I moved to Melbourne. I started at Melbourne University, and I said goodbye to my European dream to become a cyclist. And it was really, really hard. I was like pretty depressed, you know, for the first 12, 18 months. But, you know, I think having been an elite level sportsman in my teens, what it also brought to me was resilience. It brought discipline. And once I decided this is the new path, I really threw myself at it. And of course, the other thing 
is this, you know, when you come from, when you come from a background like I came from, when you come from a blue-collar neighbourhood, and you get to that top university, who are the kids around you? You know who's around you. They're the kids who go to the private schools and who come from privilege. There was maybe one in ten kids like me at, uni at Melbourne University. And you know what? I hated those other kids. Because they were staying in the halls of residence, they were at the boarding colleges, and I wasn't there. I was living with my brother and sister. I hated them. And you know when you're in that environment, when you feel like people are better than you, what do you do? What do you do? You work hard. Eh? You work really, really hard. And I worked hard. So I went for my undergraduate scholarship. I went on to a graduate scholarship. But there was also a bit of a problem, because when I went and did my undergraduate studies, I didn't have a clue what a career was. What am I going to study? And actually, initially what I did was I studied social sciences, politics and history, because I was interested in that, and I loved it, actually. I enjoyed my studies. But then I started to realize something. What do you start to realize? You're not going to earn a lot of money doing that. Yeah? People were reminding me all the time, what are you studying the arts for? What sort of job are you going to get? So I started to look around at university, and of course, what did they see? I saw these mostly guys, and they wore really nice suits, and they drove nice cars, and they made a lot of money. And of course, you know which faculty those professors were in? The business school. So I said to myself, I'm going to be one of those guys. So I, I shifted, I shifted my focus, not in terms of what I loved and what I enjoyed, which was my history and my political science, the interesting stuff, I channeled myself into commerce. And that's where I went on and did my graduate studies. And of course I did my graduate studies, got another scholarship, and then I thought, you know what, I'm going to be the best. So I wasn't happy with applying for a job at Melbourne Uni or you know, AGSM in Sydney. And by the time I was 29 years old, uh, I was working at, in London. I was at London Business School, one of the top graduate management schools in the world. And now I thought, I was, I thought it was amazing. Eh? You know when you take those long-haul flights and they have those little bottles of alcohol? Oh, it's like, uh, uh, it was, wow. Eh? And by the way, what do you think my family thought? What do you think my friends thought from this neighbourhood where I grew up? They were so proud. Eh? They were so, so proud. And of course, when I got to London, wow, who here has worked in London? What an incredible place. Eh? You know, you think you're a big fish, and then you get to London, and who are the people surrounding you? Brilliant. Eh? And I felt this big. And of course, you know what? I looked around at that London Business School, and who were most of these young professors? They were the guys who'd been to Harvard, and INSEAD, and Kellogg. And you know what? I hated those guys. <laughs> Man, I hated them. So what do you do when they make you feel this big? What do you do? You work harder, right? Now, there's also something really amazing. Well, amazing, interesting, you know. I don't think Mrs. Evans, when she gave me that advice, you know, to, to study, I don't think she did that because she wanted to hurt me, right? Why do people give you that advice? Why do they say, follow this path and not that one? Why do they do that? It's what they know. What else? They want, to, they want you to be happy. They want to save you from struggle. And, and a big part of that, actually, where I grew up was financial. It was economic hardship. So they want to, they want, you know, to save you a little bit from that. Um, and that's important. Uh, so I actually 
that was a big driver for me, right? Was was money, money. And when I got to London, it wasn't just you know I just I didn't just aim for that job because it was being the best. It was also the best paid. It was about financial. It was about earning. You know, so I got to I got to the London Business School and I worked really, really hard. By the time I was 39 years old, I was a full professor. 39. You know, I was named the management guru in the Financial Times. All the stuff that you said actually must have about the top 25 and all that stuff. I was there by the time I was 39 years old. Right? And it's an amazing thing as well, right? Because you know, when you call home to your mum and you say, "Hey, mum," and she says, "How are you doing?" What do you say? Wonderful. Eh? Great. But I was starting to feel something, and I'd been actually feeling it for quite some time, but I never, ever, I, I never articulated it to anybody yet. And the fact was that, yes, I was this big success in my career, but the other thing was, of course, is I was absolutely miserable. And, and that was who I'd become. That was me at 39 years old. What do you see in that face? Empty. Yeah. I was miserable. I was miserable. I hated 80% of my job. I was very good at it, but I hated it. Yeah. Now, the other thing, of course, I was is I was arrogant. Because those of us who've worked in London, you are surrounded by big egos. Huh? Big egos. Status, hierarchy, you know, people who put you down. And to survive in that environment sometimes, you forget your humility. You bring this ego into the room. I, had a, I was an asshole to a lot of people because you had to be to survive in that environment. Yeah? Now, of course, the other thing was is I was really unhealthy. You know, for someone who'd been a sportsman, it's not like I was really fat, but I was all soft. You know, it, was all, it was just all soft, was, and, and, I, and I hated that. You know, I hated looking at my mirror, myself in the mirror thinking, what, where's he gone? I didn't feel good about that. And of course, the other thing was, you know, despite all this professional success, is that someone, you know, no one had stopped me from any, any point, from that journey from 18 years old to 39 years old, 20 years. Yeah? No one had stopped me and said, it's not just about you. In fact, it was the opposite. Because you know, when I was studying, when I was teaching at London Business School, that was nuts. Huh? I set up my own consultancy business, and at the same time, I did my executive MBA. Same time. Part, while I was teaching, I did every two weeks, sad, Friday, Saturday, MBA. So I was being, doing that as well. And I remember being on an MBA, and what do they tell you on the MBA? When you're at an elite, prestigious business school, they say it's all about you. It's about your career, what you can do with your life, the sky's the limit. Nobody stops you and says, at one point in your life, it's not just about you. Because, of course, the other thing that I was at 39 years old was I was a father, I was a husband, and I was a father. And I was being lousy at both. I was not a good husband, and I was not being a good dad. Because I was working 60 hours a week, and I was travelling all of the time. You know, and I remember at this time, I remember reading bedtime stories to my kids and I would skip bits. Because I had stuff to do. I had stuff to do. And you know what? If you do that with a six-year-old kid, they know it. Because they want to hear the same storybook every single time. Of course, you know, uh, they know. You know, I'd be on holidays. And what would I be doing when I was on I would leave holidays to go to a meeting with, with Joseph Ackerman at Deutsche Bank. Because that was an important thing to do. 
I miss my kids' birthdays because your, your idea, your priorities get completely fuddled in that bubble that you think is normal. Right? And I started to realize something, and the thing that I started to realize was this, you know, is that what do you do? You know, if you spend 20 years of your life aspiring to be something, and then when you get there, you realize it's not what you want to do at all. What should you do now? And that's where I was. Should you just continue on this linear path? Or is there another way? And the other thing I started to realize, of course, is that it's not my decision. So what I did, what we did actually, my wife and I, was in 2009, we sat down and we took a sheet of paper and we drew a picture. And it wasn't about what I talked about with my MBA career advisor. It was about us as a family. And we asked a very simple question. What does success look like for us as a family? Uh, and it was amazing because actually what we talked about as a couple was love. Romance. Because I met my wife when I was 29, she was 31, and we had a wonderful romance. Eh? But that was all, it wasn't all gone, but we had no time for romance anymore. Because we were working too hard, and we had, we had three children under the age of six. Has anyone ever had three kids under the age of six? It's hell. It's hell. You don't, and actually, as a professional, you don't want to go home. It's too, com it's too messy, too complicated. Eh? So you, you, you'd much prefer the meeting with Ackerman over nappies and bottles and all that stuff, right? I didn't, you know, I wanted romance with my wife again. Of course, the other thing that we wanted was, was I wanted to be a dad to my children. Because you have this window of opportunity with them, and then it's gone. So I said, I want to spend real time with my children. So the first thing we talked about was relationships. We want to, we want to do that. Because the other thing we talked about was the place. You know, where do we want to live? Because when you're pursuing your career, I didn't go to London because I love London. I went to London because that's where the action was. Yeah? You know, I was working in Boston. That's where the action was. I was doing all of these things because I was going places and I was pulling my family around with me because that's what the job required. But we were not big city people. My wife and I grew up in small country towns and we said, you know what, that's the environment we want our kids to grow up in not in some big city, in some fancy apartment or whatever. And then we talked about holidays, the places we wanted to take our kids on holidays. Because again, what we were doing, we were getting caught in this status trap, you know, going on the skiing holidays and the fancy holidays resorts. But again, that's not what we did when we were children. We went camping. We wanted to do that with our kids. So we had a talk. Now, the other thing, of course, was the question of, of what, what do we really love? Now, I told you I didn't like my job. Now, that was a bit of a problem, right? That was a bit of a problem. I'll come back to that in a second. But do you know what I still had a fire in my gut for? What was still burning, you think, after 20 years? It was my bike, eh? And I drew a little hand-drawn bicycle in that bottom right corner. And I said to my wife, I want to see what, my, what I can do. I never had that chance. I'm not, I'm not eluding myself. I'm not going to turn professional or anything like that. But I want to go back and race at the world level. Because that was my dream. And at the time, it was amazing. I had switched on the TV a few weeks before. My wife and I was talking about this. And this thing came on TV called the World Masters Games. Have you heard of it? The World Masters Games. It's an Olympics for old people like me. <laughs> awesome. Huh? It was in Sydney in 2009. 23 different sports. And it's Olympics for old people. And the next one was coming in Torino four years later. So I said to my wife, I'm going to go. Uh, and under me, my wife, she looked at me. She'd never known me as an athlete. Eh? She looked me up and down. Her eyes kind of went up and she said, well, 
that's nice, darling. You know, you better get started. <laughs> okay. All right. So, she, and I said, what about you? You know, and she, but the amazing thing about her is she loves her work. My wife teaches Dutch as a foreign language and she cares about her work. She, she, she's back working now. I mean, she works with people from Syria, Iraq. It's not just language. She, she, she really has purpose in her work. She wanted to get back to her job because for her, that's her passion. So we talked about it. The other thing, of course, she wanted to do with you know, her dance, her theater, things she loved that she'd, again, lost doing because she had sacrificed stuff for my career. Why? You know, why should she have to sacrifice all that for me? And that's, that's what I started to realize. It has to be two ways. Now, of course, then it came to the career thing. And honestly, I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I was this professor. And I didn't like So much of it I didn't like. And what I decided actually was, was just... I, I don't know. I don't know. But the one thing that I did, of course, realize was that fundamentally that picture was incompatible with the career that I had. And about a week after my wife and I drew that picture, I walked into that business school and I resigned my job. I resigned my job. And it was the most terrifying experience of my life. The night before, I didn't sleep, huh? sweating, lying awake, but I just knew. If I continued like this, this linear path, I was dead. I was dead. Well, you know, emotionally, relationship-wise. So I resigned. What, what are you afraid of? Everything. Everything. The status will go away. The money will go away. You know, I still had nightmares because of the way I grew up financially, insecurity, that we'd be out on the street, you know. I had nightmares about that. Um, that, you know, if, if, if it all went wrong, I would never come back again. But I said, no, just, just put those things aside. Actually, what I did was I tried to logically look at those fears and tick them off and say, we can deal with that. Uh, and we started on the journey. Okay, left the job and started on the journey. So what did we do? We tried to find this new path. We, we, we left the big city. We moved to a small town where we live now in Belgium. My wife went back to work and I started riding my bike again. And when I was out on my bike, I started to think. Something I hadn't done for a very long time. And about three years later, I stood on the start line of the World Masters Games in Torino. And I cannot tell you how this felt. Because I dreamed about this day since I was nine years old. And the most amazing thing was I was not there alone. I was there with the most amazing wife and three beautiful children. And as I stood on the start line with 200, 260 of the world's best cyclists, older guys like me, <laughs> okay, um, I never forget this moment. My little girl, Hannah, she, came, she, you know, she budged her way through the marshal. She came up to me in the, in the marshalling area and she took my hand and I will never, ever forget what she said to me. You know, she looked at me, this little girl, nine years old at the time, she looked at me in the eye and she said, Papa, it's okay if you don't win. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful, eh? A bit like a mother. Um, but the amazing thing about this picture, and I, this is very special to me, and you know, I have a photo of this on my desk at home, because at that moment when Hannah held my hand, I realized, of course, it's not about winning the race. Eh? It's not about winning. When you get there, when, you, when you're in that moment of the day, when you realize that you, you're living your dream, 
it's not about it's not about winning. It's not about it's actually about who you have to become along the way. Because I was I wasn't this big professor and you know all that stuff was very nice. The introduction. I'm not that stuff anymore. I'm not. You know what am I now? I'm a speaker. I do this stuff. I'm a blogger. I'm an author. Okay, professionally I earn okay out of that. Not as much as I did before, but I earn enough. But I'm a I think a good husband. I think I'm a very good dad. And at that moment, I realized that I was an athlete again. And I never imagined that was possible. So essentially, what I started to realize at that moment was everything that Anami and I had drawn on that picture, it was starting to fall into place. But it hadn't been easy. For the first two years we were on this journey, our income as a family dropped by 80%. 80%. I had setbacks. You know, getting back on my bike again, that took time. I fell down. I broke bones. But every time we suffered a heartache or a setback, under me and I, we looked at that picture on the fridge and we said, that's the picture. That's the direction. And we kept working towards it. And of course, oh yeah, the, other, the other thing that Hannah said was, watch out for those guys. Have a look at these guys. Ukraine, Crimea. Have a look at their faces. These guys are there to win. Have a look at the Australian guy. <laughs> I'm smiling like a monkey. I was so happy. I was like saying hello to everybody. I was like saying to my kids, take some more photos. This is fantastic. I'll send them home to my mum, you know. It was, just, it, was, it was just amazing. It was so good. And then, you know, the, the, the race itself. So eight laps of a circuit in, in Park Valentino, in the center of Turin in, in, in Italy, right? Laps of this circuit. I've been trained to put my body around that circuit every single day for three and a half years. And around that circuit was a climb, a one-kilometer climb with an 18% gradient. We'd moved to a place in Belgium. Guess what? Within about five k's, I had a climb of, of like one kilometer. I'd put my body over that climb a thousand times. And the race was unbelievable. We started with 260 guys. And every lap we ran around, we went over that climb. And I'd look behind me, and there were 20 more guys gone. There were 20 more guys gone. And this picture you see here was two laps to go. You see how many guys are left? And that's me in the white with the green sleeves. And at that moment, you know, a crazy thing started to go through my head. I could win. And not only that, I could... I mean, these are my kids, huh? They were screaming. My kids, every time I was going to that, they were cheering. My wife had the Australian flag. I was feeling amazing. Eh? I thought, I can win. I can win. You know, my kids are going to see their dad win. I'm going to win. But I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I was an incredible slowback uh, cyclist, ex-professional. Uh, the guy who was second uh, was an Italian. But I did come home with a bronze medal. And, and that's my medal. So if anyone wants a selfie later, you know, they'll picture and that's okay. It's amazing. I carry this everywhere. I carry this everywhere. And uh, yeah, there's one other little race that I'm very proud of, especially here in South Africa. Um, two years later, I won a little race called the uh, Cape Argus, Cape Town Cycle Tour. I didn't win the pros because I'm not professional, but I won the amateur 
international writers category. Amazing, eh? To be standing on that podium and to being here, I've got, and that's why I love coming back to this city. I love this city. It means a lot. Okay. So, you know, what's my message really to all of you? Yeah, my message is, you have all incredible potential. You know, you're you're all obviously very smart. You've all already achieved a lot of success. You know, in, in your lives to this point. But have self-belief. And at some point in your career, if you realize that there's potentially another path for you, you know, have the courage to step into that path and try it. Because the last thing you ever want in your life is to get to the end of it and realize that those incredible abilities, potential that you have inside of you, you know, haven't been released. So I wish you every success with that journey. Thank you very much. Thank you.